Good morning, everybody. My name is Peter Kroll. I'm one of the elders here for our church, and we have been studying through the book of Mark together, which is Mark is one of the biographies of Jesus that we have in the New Testament. Where we are in Mark, Jesus is nearing the end of his ministry, and the next time we come to Mark, Jesus will enter the city of Jerusalem for the last time. That is the city where he will be killed, just as he predicted three times so far in the book. Today is Palm Sunday on, on the calendar. It's, it's the day that Christians traditionally celebrate this entry event where Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem for the last time. The main thing that the people shout while Jesus rides in the city on a donkey is Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And these things that they shout are quotes from Psalm 118. Hosanna is an Aramaic word that means save us. And they refer to the one who comes. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the, the one who delivers the people of Israel. And this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 118 to, to give us some background to this event, to understand what's going on on Palm Sunday. Psalm 118, by the time of Jesus in the, the first century AD, it, it was this psalm was sung traditionally by the Jews on their Passover Eve celebration. So when Jesus enters the city, they're getting ready for Passover. And on the eve before the main celebration, they would sing this song. That's why it was on people's minds. That's why they're quoting it while Jesus rides into the city. And this same psalm will come up in another passage in just a few chapters in Mark during the Passover feast. And it's going to be when Jesus tells a parable to the Jewish leaders in the temple at Jerusalem. So this morning, we're going to take some time to understand this psalm, which will help us to understand this final week of Jesus's ministry before he was crucified. And this will help us to understand what Jesus was about. Let me pray for us, and then we will read this psalm together in a special way. I'll give you some instructions. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this time to study your word. Please help us to understand this psalm, which, which takes an important role in the last week before Jesus' execution. Help us to know you, grant us of your spirit to understand it, that we might serve you better, and we might join this great parade of giving thanks to you that you have established through history. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, instead of me reading this to you, we're all going to read this together so that we can participate in what, what the psalm is talking about. And we're going to do this antiphonally. That means we're going to have two halves. Okay? And we'll start on the left side here. Each, you can see on the slides, there, there will be two lines, pairs. Each verse is divided into a pair. And the left side will read the first line of the pair, and the right side will respond with the second line of the pair. The dots are there just to help you see the pairs better. And there will be just a few times when there's a third line in all caps. When you see that, we will all say that third line together. Okay? And when you do this, when people 
when congregations read scripture together in many churches, the usual practice, at least when I've been in places, is to mumble. But you can't mumble this psalm, okay? You have to speak it out, practically shouting it at one another. We're not going to scream it, but it has to be vigorous and thunderous, okay? To help us do that, would you please stand? And we will read together Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. The Lord is on my side as my helper. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling. For the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the Lord's This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray for your success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Please be seated. You can see in your outlines that we're going to, this psalm is divides into four sections. Uh, right at the beginning, the 
poet, he states his purpose, which is to recruit others to give thanks to the Lord. And then he'll give his reasons, for he is good, for his steadfast loves endures forever. And then finally he will conclude with his same thesis again, give thanks to the Lord. So let's start with verses 1 through 4. His purpose His introduction here is to recruit others to give thanks to the Lord. He states his thesis right in verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord. And there is an imperative here. The poet commands the audience to give thanks. He's not just saying that he himself will give thanks. He is trying to recruit the people to join him in giving thanks. Give thanks to the Lord. Verses 2 through 4, he talks about all the different groups of people that he wants to recruit to give thanks. Israel, the house of Aaron, and those who fear the Lord. He is speaking to anyone who has a stake in the religion of Israel, those who care about the true God, the one who created us to fill the earth for his glory, the one who rescued us out of slavery in Egypt, and he says, give thanks with me. Say, His steadfast love endures forever. Three times, verses 2, 3, and 4. So this poet is on a mission to celebrate the God of Israel. And he wants to recruit others to join his celebration. And we need to see this because it, it affects the flow of the poem. There is a movement taking place in this poem because the poet is trying to rouse the crowd His goal here is not just to teach people, but his goal is to produce worshipers. That's why I didn't just want to read the text to you. I wanted to include you and have you all read the text with me so that instead of just listening to me, it would be appropriate for you to participate with me in this passage. So he wants them to give thanks, but what are his reasons? Why should these people join him in giving thanks? In verse 1, he gives two reasons. Give thanks with me for, for, he says for twice, he gives two reasons. For he is good, and for his steadfast love endures forever. In other words, we should join him in giving thanks because of who God is. He is good. And secondly, we should join this poet in giving thanks because of what God does because God loves, and his love endures forever. And the rest of the psalm will explain these two points for us, why God is good and how his love endures forever. By way of application, I'll throw this out because this is where I'm going to go. I hope that by the end of this poem, you are ready to give thanks to the Lord with me, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let's see these things in a little more detail. Point number two, he is good. Verses 5 through 18, the poet expands on this point. And the poet, he starts with a time of distress from which he called on the Lord. Verse 5, out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. This statement is the summary of this section that sets the tone where I was in distress God heard me and God rescued me. This is why you should give thanks to the Lord. And take note of the the shift from verse 1. He's speaking to the audience. Oh, all of you, give thanks to the Lord. 
But now the pronouns shift to, I called, verse 5, out of my distress, I called. And this psalm gets very personal from verse 5 here down to verse 21, where it's all about I and me, and he expects the people to give thanks to God because of what happened to him. Because of what happened to this one guy, everybody should give thanks to the Lord. And then we'll see later in verse 23, it will shift from I and me to we and us. And it will, the people will join in as it turns more to a community celebration. But the reason for celebration here we see in verse 5 is this guy's movement from distress to song. Down in verses 14 and 15, he talks about his song. The Lord has become my salvation. He is my strength and my song. Let's look at how this shift takes place. First, we need to see, uh, I forgot to put this on the outline, but if you want to write letter A, distress is real. Distress is real. I'm going to look at verses 10 through 13. Distress is real. He is surrounded by many nations. It's repeated four times in verses 10 through 13. But in the name of the Lord, he cut them off. That's repeated three times. And the summary is in verse 13. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. Now, I don't know if you've ever been swarmed by bees. This guy talks about in verse 12. They surrounded me like bees, all these hostile nations. I don't know if you've been swarmed by bees or if you've been subject to wildfire. He uses those similes in verse 12. But for me, once, when I was in junior high school, I was out playing with some friends by a creek, and we stumbled on a bee's nest. We got out of there fast. I'm thankful I I got stung only two or three times, but it was one of those times in my life when I just absolutely freaked out. I don't know if you've ever been in that kind of a situation. If you know what it's like to be swarmed by bees or to be caught in the middle of a wildfire. And here is a guy who was surrounded By all the nations, verse 10, all nations surrounded me. And there's this language of warfare, of cutting them off. So he probably had an army with him. He has fought many wars on behalf of his people. And though the psalm never uses the word king, most who read this psalm trust that this is talking about the king of Israel, the one who would lead the battle for the people and be out there among the nations being surrounded by these hostile armies. And this psalm describes this king's distress in the middle of those gathering forces, and he does not feel like laughing. But Psalm 118 describes the fulfillment of God's promise to the king, God's promise to the king in Psalm 2, that I will cut off all the nations on your behalf. And here we see that I cut them off three times. I cut them off, I cut them off, I cut them off. What got him through that distress? In the middle of that distress and that fear and freaking out, we see that in verses 6 through 9. I'm going to go backwards a little bit because I wanted to see distress is real. But now, letter B, the Lord is better. The Lord is better. Verses 6 through 9, he says two times, the Lord is on my side. In verse 7, he says, the Lord is my helper. And he repeated that in verse 13, that the Lord helped me. 
It's the Lord on my side. The Lord is my helper. And he says two times, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in someone else, than to trust in man, verse 8, or to trust in princes, verse 9. You see, this king who's leading these armies out into battle, he's facing many men. He's facing many armies. There are many nations surrounding him, and he is face to face with the world's power and the world's influence and the world's weaponry. And when he faces down those things, he has a choice, as do we all. Though in our situations, we have much less at stake than he does. But the choice is this. Will I trust that the Lord is on my side? Or here's another way to state the choice. Is refuge in the Lord better than trust in man or in princes? There is the choice. How does this apply for us? To trust that the Lord is better. Well, friends, if this year's election cycle appoints an unsavory president of the United States... Will it ruin your life, our lives? Will it be the end of our hope for the future? Or can we say, the Lord is on my side. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in presidents. When holding a traditional view of marriage becomes a hate crime in our culture, will you choose to believe that God is a better ally for you than the lobbyists are. When you are in the middle of that hostility and you are surrounded by them like bees, will it be better to take refuge in the Lord? When your professors or your classmates or maybe your roommates ridicule the Bible, will you take refuge in the God who breathed it out? Or will you dissociate yourself from those people Uh, sorry, from God, will you dissociate yourself from God and come out from under him? Children, you have choices that you face too. When you have friends or neighbors, the other kids around you who try to get you to disobey your parents and do the wrong things, they want to get you to cross the street or go outside of your boundaries that your parents have given you or to, to ditch your schoolwork and just have fun with them. Or maybe they want to get you to look at some scary pictures on their phones or something. Do you know that it is better to please God than it is to please your friends? Everybody, when we trust in the Lord, the one who alone is able to save, we will see his deliverance firsthand. Distress is real, but the Lord is better. And let her see here. Salvation makes us sing. Let her see. Salvation makes us sing. Verses 14 through 18, God enables this king to defeat all of his enemies who surround him. And in verse 14, he says, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. And verses 15 and 16 describe the songs that you can find in the tents of all the soldiers who've gone out to battle with this king. Verses 17 and 18 describe what happens when a puny man trusts a great God. He says, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount 
the deeds of the Lord. Even though I'm under threat of death, I will recount the Lord's deeds. In verse 18, I've been disciplined, but not destroyed by the Lord. All is that so that I can recount the Lord's deeds, presumably in song, because that's what he said in 14 and 15. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. So there is a grand movement in verses 5 through 18 in this section. There is a movement from distress to song. And you see, this king must go through a near-death experience in order to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Therefore, he starts a movement. He starts something of a parade. And the application for us will be, will you join that parade? Will you pick up the songs? Will you join that parade? If you have seen the goodness of the Lord in rescuing you out of distress, please join me in the parade. All of this shows us that God is good. Moving on to number three on the outline. Number three, here's the second reason to give thanks. It's because his steadfast love endures forever in verses 19 through 28. In this second half of the psalm, it switches from describing God to celebrating God. You see, he described who God is, that God is a good helper, and he described what God has done his valiant salvation for one in distress, and now he goes from describing to celebrating. The victorious king has arrived back home to Jerusalem, and here in verse 19, he starts at this, the gates of the city, and he leads a homecoming parade up to the temple altar for the rest of the song. There's this physical movement going on. So let's unpack this and take a look at this. First, I have some subpoints under here for you as well. Letter A, rejoice in past salvation. Letter A is rejoice in past salvation for verses 19 through 24. Rejoice in past salvation. In verse 19, the king enters through the city gates. He says, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. He's expecting those who are righteous to follow him. Verse 20, this is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. And he's starting this parade through the city gates. Why is he doing that? The end of verse 19 is so that I can give thanks to the Lord. You see, he's back to the stated purpose of the whole psalm. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. In verse 21, we see what he gives thanks for. It's that God has answered him. God has become his salvation. He's reflecting back on all that he described in verses 5 through 18 in that previous section. And this is the king's perspective on all that happened, that God answered him and saved him and rescued him. So as he starts the parade, he reminds the people of what happened to him. But in starting at verses 22, it shifts to the people's perspective. The pronouns go from singular, I and me, to plural, we and us. So here's where the people join in the celebration. Verse 22, they say this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In other words, this king of ours, this king who is out there representing us, representing our nation, he was interacting with world-building nations, with 
empire-building nations. Those builders out there rejected him. They rejected our king. They came and fought against him. They surrounded him like bees. And yet, yet, he has become the cornerstone to this building, the thing that God is building in the world. This king was rejected, and the world doesn't understand what God is doing in Israel, yet Israel has become the focal point of God's redemption. Verse 23, they say, we can't even believe that God would do this, but it is his doing. It is simply marvelous to us. Why would he put us and our king at the center of his efforts to heal the world? There is no good reason for this, but he has done it. Therefore, verse 24, we will rejoice and be glad in this day God has made. This day when we welcome our king home. This day when we celebrate what God has done. This day when we remember the king's rejection by all the nations. So to summarize, the the king rehearses what he's been through. And the people join with him in celebrating God's marvelous work but they don't stop with the past. That was letter A, rejoice in past salvation. Letter B, they beg for more salvation. They beg for more salvation. In light of the past salvation, they now beg for more in verses 25 through 27. This celebration leads them into a few outbursts. Because you see, parades are supposed to be noisy. And people can't help a few outbursts. First, They have an outburst of a request. Verse 25, save us, we pray, O Lord. And this is where, by the time the Hebrew becomes Aramaic in Jesus' day, the word for save us is Hosanna. That's where they say, Hosanna, we pray, O Lord, Hosanna, save us. O Lord, we pray, give us success. You've done it in the past. Though our king was rejected, he was helped by you, and his enemies didn't stand a chance. Now, God, please save us as well. Rescue us from rejection. Rescue us from attack and oppression. Please make everything right again, as it was meant to be. No governor can do this for us. No prince can do this for us. No president of the United States can do this for us. Only the Lord God can do this for us. Save us, we pray, O Lord. That's their request. And then they make a blessing. Verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They praise God for the king who once rejected is now victorious, and they bless him from the house of the Lord, the end of verse 26. You see, the parade started at the gates, and it wound its way through the city as people picked up to it, but now they've gotten up to the temple at the heights of the city. They have come to the house of the Lord. And even the priests call down a blessing on this king from the house of the Lord. And then they confess who God is. Verse 27, the Lord is God. He has made his light to shine upon us. Our hope is not in the king of Israel, not even this guy that we are blessing the Lord for. Our hope is not in any man. Our hope is only the Lord, Yahweh. He is God. So you see these outbursts their requests for salvation, their blessing, uh, he who comes in the name of the Lord, their confession that Yahweh is God. These things erupt from celebration. They show that the only hope for salvation from God 
is in the king who speaks in the name of the Lord his God. And through this king, they beg God for more hope and more salvation. So they come through the city gates and up to the temple. The priests pronounce a blessing from the temple gates. The procession now moves into the temple complex over to the altar of burnt sacrifice where they would make offerings of animals to the Lord. And so letter C, under point three, is give thanks for the sacrifice. Give thanks for the sacrifice. The end of verse 27 says, bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. This is a special animal reserved for this celebration, and they want to bind it to the top of the altar. And verse 28, with the sacrifice comes the culmination of their thanksgiving. You are my God. Two times. You are my God. I will give thanks to you. I will extol you. Here's the heart of their thanksgiving, the climax of their praise. It is the death of a substitute in their place. The festal sacrifice, the animal that was killed so that they wouldn't have to be killed. It was bound to the altar. Instead of the king getting destroyed by the angry nations, instead of the people being destroyed by God's fiery wrath, this animal takes their place. And in recounting their past salvation and in begging God for more salvation and in giving thanks for the sacrifice, they proclaim the enduring, steadfast love of the Lord. And this proclamation, this psalm, ends up getting embedded into their annual feast called Passover, which was the feast that they would celebrate every spring to remember how God rescued them out of slavery in Egypt and how he did not kill them as they deserved, but he brought them out. And they would sing this psalm to celebrate it. Because as they remembered what God did for the king, it was another picture of God's passing over us and giving us his mercy. And so we get to the conclusion of this psalm. Point number four, the conclusion in verse 29. is that the psalm ends exactly where it began. Word for word, verses 1 and 29 are the same. Give thanks, oh give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Except the difference between verse 1 and verse 29 is that by the time we get to the end, it's no longer just the king giving thanks. It's all the people who have joined him in the parade, through the gates, through the city, up to the temple, into the complex, up to the altar of burnt offering. Now, why do the people in Jesus' day quote this psalm when Jesus enters Jerusalem? Have you picked up any hints so far to help you answer that question? I'm going to answer that question, and then I want to talk about what we should take, what we today should take from this psalm. First, why do they quote this when he enters Jerusalem? Why do they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? They do that because it is the beginning of their Passover feast, a seven-day celebration, and this song would be on their minds every Passover. And when Jesus is ready to enter the city, he will tell two of his disciples to go and find him a colt of a donkey to ride on, and they will bring it back, and he will ride on that donkey, which uh, culturally, that will make him look like 
He's acting like a conquering king returning home. That's what the kings do. They would ride the donkey in through the gates of the city. And the people will lay out their coats for Jesus to ride on like a red carpet. And he begins the parade through the gates of the city. And as we will read in Mark's gospel, you can read it this afternoon if you want in chapter 11. He will go through those gates and that parade will go and Jesus will go right up to the temple to see what's going on at the temple. However, Jesus' true distress is yet to come, unlike the king in Psalm 118. In Mark 9 and 10, Jesus predicted his rejection and his death three times. And Jesus won't be rejected by the pagan nations who all surround him like bees. He will be rejected by the leaders of the people of Israel. When Jesus gets up to the temple, the priests will not pronounce a blessing on him from the house of the Lord, like in verse 26 of this psalm. Instead, the chief priests will argue with him. They will seek to trap him. They will look for a way to take him into custody away from the people. The house of Aaron, who should be proclaiming the steadfast love of the Lord, which endures forever, instead they will play the part of the builders rejecting the stone, which becomes the cornerstone. So when Jesus gets to the temple, he will see no fruit. And he will upset things, and he will have to overthrow the establishment. There will be no festal sacrifice waiting for him at that altar. And so he will become the festal sacrifice himself. That's why they quote this psalm as Jesus enters the city. So we think about all these things. Let me end with this. What does this psalm have to do with us today? Let me give you three final applications. First, please understand what kind of savior Jesus had to be. Please understand what kind of savior Jesus had to be. And let Palm Sunday remind you of what kind of savior Jesus had to be. You see, Jesus was not the conquering king riding home to start the homecoming parade. He was the king who came in the parade, and then he went through his distress and his rejection. And Jesus' distress brought you a song. Jesus died so you and I could live. Jesus was disciplined so that you and I could become sons and daughters of God. And the essence of Jesus' work is his suffering and death on our behalf. That's why those who follow him must also lay down their lives for others as we walk his path. So please understand what kind of savior Jesus had to be. Second application. Please turn your distress into song. Please turn your distress into song. Friends, this psalm shows us that life is hard and distress is real. Even if you are the king of God's people, (laughs) distress is real. But this psalm gives us a way forward. It helps us to turn our distress into song. Though our distress is real, the Lord is better. Remember that often and recount the salvation that God has provided 
And as you think about Jesus as the festal sacrifice, see if that doesn't help you to put your distress in perspective. Even if you feel surrounded like bees or trapped in the middle of a wildfire. Application number two, please turn your distress into song. And final application number three, please join the parade. Please join the parade. Though our faith focuses on one man's death for all the people, Christianity is not ultimately a funeral march. Christianity is a homecoming parade. It's not a funeral march, but a homecoming parade. Children and younger folks, I think you get this better than we old folks do. Because you're all about celebration and hanging out with your friends and having a good time and playing sports and playing games. Please help us, especially when we sing in church. This is a celebration. This is not a funeral march. And young folks, we need you to sing out and show us how to celebrate our Lord Jesus. Don't act foolishly screaming or losing control, but show us how to be happy and excited. And adults, my challenge to you is that if you find the children are too loud or too distracting during the singing or the whole thing is just too loud, it might mean that you're not singing loud enough, okay? Please step it up and join the parade. Please try to keep up with us as we worship the Lord because this this parade is moving. This ain't a funeral march. The blessed is the king who has come in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for sending Jesus to be our king. Thank you for starting this movement, this parade. Help us to join it as we understand what kind of savior Jesus had to be. As we learn to turn our distress into song, please help us to join your parade, O Lord. May we give thanks to you, for you are good, and your steadfast love endures forever. Help us, save us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.